Hello and welcome to The Pain Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I am your host in The Pain Cave and I am very excited to be joined today by one of my true idols in the sport of trail running and in running coaching and writing. Uh, He has a new book out with his wife called The Happy Runner uh, that we're going to get into in great detail. David Roche, welcome to The Pain Cave. Thanks so much for having me on, Jay. That intro makes my heart sore, so I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks for coming on, man. This is an exciting time for you uh, with the release of the book. It came out uh, about two weeks ago, and uh, I think you said you're already into the second printing, huh? Yeah, they they did that real quick. I know nothing about book publishing whatsoever, so um, it's been a major learning process, and I think I've learned that I really don't want to learn about it too much, so um, (laughs) yeah, just taking it as it comes. So the book is published by uh, Human Kinetics, uh, which is the publishing company that's responsible for a lot of classic, uh, I would say science-based running books, and and running and endurance sports books in general, but uh, the publishers behind The Lore of Running and uh, Running Anatomy and and a bunch of other great running-related books and training manuals. I I do want to get into the book in in detail in in a little while, because it it really is a a really excellent book, and, and... it really brings out a lot of what I love about you as a, as a writer in general. And also, it's, it's a different kind of running book. It's not your average kind of training manual. It it's definitely approaches things from a different way. And we'll get into that in a sec. But one thing I want to start with you, David, is uh, about your background as, mm-hmm. as a coach, as a runner, how you got into the sport and everything else. You have a, a little bit of a, uh, an unusual story, I think, in terms of how you got into it, but also professionally, your, your uh, situation is a little bit different. You, you're a full-time running coach who actually worked full-time as a lawyer before that. So I wanted to get into a little bit about that and kind of how you got to where you are today. Oh, yeah, for sure. So I took a circuitous route to everything, like a number of switchbacks along the way, a few wrong turns. Um, so very briefly... I am a lawyer by training um, and, you know, with a science background to like a master's degree in science stuff. And yeah, coaching never, coaching was like not even a side hustle. It was like something you do for friends on the side. And right. then it just gradually became something more to the point that like I couldn't um, couldn't bear another day of not having it be the focus. So um that was the professional background, and yeah, I feel like um, it, it's one of those ways that you never know what your calling is, or even if a su- such thing as a calling exists, um, but sometimes, like, you just gotta, like, l- I think luck is presented to all of us, as, you know, the cliche goes, and you just, like, need to be willing to take the chance to pursue it, because I think a lot of people just don't take that first risk, and um, fortunately, you know, my wife, Megan, was pushing me forever. She was, before I even coached anyone but her, she was like, you should just be a coach. You should just be a coach. Um, And so, yeah. And now then I became the one returning the favor, telling her, the doctor, you should just be a coach. You should just be a coach. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, it's kind of a funny funny situation. Yeah, I I, I did want to ask you about that. And you go into that a little bit in the book in that you were... um... I don't. I don't want to say you were like a high-powered lawyer, like we see on TV or anything like that. But but you were fairly career-oriented, and you were working. You know, I'm sure long lawyer hours, just like lawyers are wont to do. And there, it, it sounds like it, it became a. There was a very clear breaking point where you were just like, I, I'm not doing this anymore. I only want to do what's going to make me happy professionally. And and it sounds like that was kind of it for you. But like you say, there's. Uh, it it takes a lot of courage to do something like that, and I did want to ask you about that, uh, especially something that you you have to train as long as you do to to be a lawyer or a professional like that with a lot of graduate education, and then you bring, take on all that debt and everything else. How hard was it to make that decision and actually take the plunge? I mean, maybe the decision itself wasn't hard, but to actually follow through on it might have. Uh, it seems like it would be very very <laughs> difficult. As somebody, <laughs> let me put it this way: as somebody yeah. who is in a, a similar situation in terms of a career that they are maybe less than satisfied with that also involved a ton of training and the accumulation of debt, who wishes he could take that plunge, you know, convince me to do so, or at least tell me, <laughs> tell, me, tell, me that, tell me that there's a light at the end of the tunnel or something. Well, you should quit your job and move to Boulder, <laughs> which I say that as a joke, but um, we, uh, you know, in our, we have a secret 
team social media page. And um, at one point, like six months ago or something, this woman named Lauren posted, okay, I'm thinking about quitting my job and doing this crazy thing. And she listed it out. And on that thread were like 60 different people talking about how since they joined Swap, they quit their job and did something else entirely. Oh, God. Including like some of the top professional runners out there mixed with like everyone else, you know, because everyone just interacts. So it was like a really funny situation. I'm not saying, I don't, I don't necessarily say people should quit their job, but I do ask people to probe pretty deeply on like why they do what they do. And that's a part of the book too. So I think it all breaks down into internal versus external incentive structures. So for me, at least in the lawyerist thing, like, you know, I was so lucky to get the job of my dreams in this, you know, prestigious environmental job that was like really setting me up to do everything that I thought I wanted to do. But it was just what I thought I wanted to do. And I think like the hardest part about leaving it wasn't like what I like my self image. It was like what I would say to people when they asked me what I did, um, you know, because like when someone asks you what you do, even in Boulder saying, I'm a public interest environmental lawyer that does these these cool things um, is sexier than saying <laughs> I am a running coach. And, um, you know, I've learned to fully embrace that, that that is like the most fun thing to say. But I think at first, you know, there's a little bit of a, a stigma there, whether it's personal or societal. And a lot of that is from external metrics for sure, as opposed to something internal, which is a lot more vague and hard to define, but usually more sustainable. And like you said, there's there's a lot of societal pressure, uh, whether that's real or imagined. I tend to think it's it's probably a little bit of both. I think when we uh, t- kind of take a step back and, and if we're honest with ourselves, society probably doesn't really care. Or even if they do, why does that necessarily affect us and our self-image? But, uh, you know, so I think part of that is overblown. But I, I also think it's it's definitely a real thing. And, and we internalize it as a real issue. And that's just one of many different obstacles to doing something like that. Oh, yeah. We are the culture we grew up in, whatever that means. And I'm really fortunate to have, you know, parents that just want me to be happy and a wife that just wants me. You know what I mean? So, like, I don't have that immediate pressure from, like, where I'm at. And and I have the safety net of this legal job as I was starting out, um, where I did both for a while. Mm-hmm. And um, it, like, you know, granted, public interest environmental law, I was raking in you know, the low, um, <laughs> I wasn't exactly on the IRS's radar. I was going to say public interest environmental law, literally rolling in tens of dollars. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, it was really funny. I, uh, so I, at one point I briefly became the hiring attorney where we were and there was a position like a fellowship that offered, I think it was $38,000 a year in a big, in DC. So, mm-hmm. you know, not, not a cheap city. Right, and we got sure. 600 applications. Oh my God. Um, Many from like Harvard and stuff like that. I'm like, man, that is an interesting field to be in. But yeah, so like, um, you know, it's a tough calculus to play out because, you know, it's from a privileged position to say, I can't even quit my job, you know, Uh, because there's a lot of stuff that holds us back. And I was super fortunate to, you know, have like essentially these, these support structures in place. Um, and yeah, so I encourage people listening not to quit your job, but just to think about why you're doing what you're doing just so that, you know, 20 years from now, you don't look back and be like, Hey, wait, why? And then have your existential crisis. And that's a big part of the, the early part of your book is, is you talk about knowing your why and kind of this, a theme running throughout the book is, is kind of, uh, continuous self-examination and self-acceptance and, recognizing the reason that you're doing things and and becoming comfortable with the process of getting from point A to point B rather than being obsessed with the goal is is kind of what you guys uh, really examine as the real key to your coaching philosophy. Oh, yeah. And we weren't like that initially. I mean, we didn't come out of our, you know, the coaching womb, like smelling of incense and <laughs> uh, other hippie stuff. It, it just, it, and I think a lot of people that work directly with the emotions of others come, whether it's a therapist or a coach that works like we do, where it's daily contact or a teacher or even a lawyer that, that works directly with clients or whatever. Um, you know, so we didn't, we just saw so many crises unfold, not just in people that were going through rough times, but also in people that had the biggest successes of their entire lives. Um, and you know, we would also see Instagram posts from the same people that, you know, it wasn't as clear. So we just learned that there was this author, 
set necessarily between like what seemed like the truth and what was actually felt in that person's head. And so the book revolves around this whole concept of self-acceptance, not because like, you know, it's something we learned in school, but it's because something that we learned is such a major issue um, for so many people. And I think what's been really funny about the book, you know, since the book has come out is like, we knew it was going to rub some people the wrong way because there's some people that think it's total and utter BS to talk about this at all. Um, And there's been a little bit of that. And I think, yeah, it's one of those things that I guess if you're not going through it or if you're in the major throes of it and don't accept yourself at all, this stuff is just, you know, extremely annoying to hear. But um, yeah, so it's it's one of those topics that it's a tough thing whether you're a runner or not. And I think runners just get more opportunities for self-judgment. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about how you kind of developed your coaching philosophy and kind of cut your chops. I mean, you you didn't come up necessarily in the sport the whole way through and you, it sounds like developed yourself as a runner yourself while you were still putting yourself through law school and developed your coaching philosophy during that time as well. So how did that happen? Are, are What were your influences and, and how did you kind of help develop this philosophy and, and kind of integrate it with the science of the sport, which really you're, you know, the thing that first turned me on to your running and your, your, um, your coaching with your writing, uh, it was your grasp of physiology and the, and and not just the grasp of it, but the application of those principles in real ways or, or in real life scenarios and in real training scenarios that that could lead to improvement how were you able like what what was the process by which you were able to integrate that kind of knowledge which also i should say is not something you learn in law school obviously so <laughs> i mean you, for somebody so well versed in that how did you how did you get gather all that knowledge how did you integrate that with kind of the mindfulness component of this and kind of develop a uh what's been a very successful coaching philosophy oh my gosh well i know it's, I it's, a, it's a lot going back no, I, no, I just I just had a, a phone job interview that lasted yeah. for like two hours, and they were like asking me these really like uh, very pointed questions, but that just I I, I was going off <laughs> on this like these total tangents, and I would talk <laughs> for like fifteen minutes, and then I'd be like, yeah, what was the question again? Where <laughs> I I can't imagine I made a very good impression. It was like. Uh, you know, I was like, that was a really long story. I hope you enjoyed it. I don't know if it answered the question at all. So anyway, go on. <laughs> that, I'm sorry. <laughs> honestly, that's the best description of our book. That was a very long story. Not sure if you enjoyed it at all or I answered the question. Um, yeah, so I think it's helpful to go back to the beginning just briefly where, I mean, for those that don't know, I went to college to play football. Um, right. And I was a big, strong dude and um, I qu- ended up quitting that. And my freshman year, and got yeah, to and you went to where, Columbia, right? Yep. Yeah. So a, not a exactly. Legendarily terrible football team. Yes, um, <laughs> though there were a few wins. I, I think they did win a game or two at one point. Um, so, so yeah, like that probably shows my football prowess. But yeah, so like I came from this place of of not. I mean, I I knew I you know was doing science stuff in college, but like knew nothing about running from being taught like externally, mm-hmm. which was really helpful in retrospect because I didn't have like any preconceived notions that were obvious to me. Right. You know, like I had to learn it all from scratch as right. any of us have that have learned some, a new skill. Um, so I came in with like that fresh, like wanting to like curiosity, like a complete curiosity without any like biases against any different approaches. And so as I developed, um, it then really helped that the big turning point was when I met my wife, Megan, who um, is an absolutely brilliant human, um, was studying neuroscience at the time at Duke, was going to be going to Stanford Medical School eventually, a couple years, a few years later. Um, and then she came in with a very similar background, field hockey at Duke. And we just started like voraciously consuming everything we could on the subject, um, you know, reading everything there was about physiology, talking to as many people as we could about it. And yeah, I mean, I think probably the defining trait that we both have, maybe two of them, one is curiosity, like I mentioned, Mm -hmm. and the other is just like, I mean, I hope like a complete lack of 
ego when it comes like intellectual ego like i don't think i know best on anything you know i want to hear from others and and try to learn new things and all that like even now with the success swap has had it's like i don't in the book goes into this like we don't have like a methodology per se that could be an entire book because i feel like you know i don't know that we just don't view ourselves like that or our coaching like that so long story but then um (laughs) yeah so we came through and i think law science medicine it all just combined to create like minds that were analytical and then once we actually started so we had all these theories essentially a mix of like renato canova the you know top tr- probably the top road guy though yeah out very successful marathon coach yep yeah yeah so a lot of those principles mixed with you know classic jack daniels um, Mark Wetmore type U- U.S. based principles, mm-hmm. and you know, so that was like the baseline. That was the starting, the origin. Uh, but then we started, you know, coaching, and coaching is the ultimate machine learning exercise, but with the machine being your brain. Um, <laughs> so I guess it's just learning. Um, and you know, we we do this method where we check in with every athlete every day. Um, so you get all this data that just builds up both in spreadsheets, but then also pattern recognition in your head. And eventually that coalesced to create kind of the, where the where we're at now, and it'll probably change a lot in the next 10 or 20 years. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it goes with anything in life that, you know, if you think you know what you're talking about, you automatically stop knowing what you're talking about pretty quickly. <laughs> right. Um, so we no, are, so we much of blessed. so much of life is knowing what you don't know, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. that's what makes or the no, best just, professionals. Or at least knowing the extent of it. That, right. it. that is this, like, knowing that you don't even know what you don't know. <laughs> right. um, and so I think that that's kind of where we're both coming from. And I mean, now, like, Megan, as a Stanford doc, Stanford-educated doctor, like, you know, I think she has as much authority to talk on these issues as anyone. But before she does, like, I mean, she still will look at every article out there, read everything on it, and then come to the conclusion just because, you know, they don't teach you about this in medical school, and I don't think there's anywhere they could teach you about it because everyone's an experiment of one. Right. So we're learning as we go. Now, so you, you mentioned, I mean, we talked a little bit about the, the physiology, and we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that stuff uh, in terms of your influences and such. But like, like we were saying, the, the, the thrust of the book is that, I mean, it, the, the book comes from a very interesting perspective, and it, start, it starts out in a very headline-grabbing and great way to start a book about running, which is you guys start out by talking about death, basically. And, you know, we're, you're, you're viewing, you know, every runner's journey as a finite journey, right? In that, in that everything has to end sometime, you know, there's no, there's no true, there's no, no statement more true than that. And as you say, people who run and train daily are just, we, we have this constant feedback and this constant awareness of, our own fragility, our own limitations, our own mortality, etc. And the thrust of the book is that by kind of embracing that and taking the long view and seeing kind of exactly how our daily task not only contributes to our, you know, reaching, hopefully reaching our athletic goals, but also the daily grind of it is, is actually what gives it the meaning and the enjoyment. And that's what is leading us to become, quote unquote, a happy runner. Now, mm-hmm. I, I find that, like you said, I think some people either have never thought about it that way or just are, like you said, some people might even be a little bit uncomfortable talking about it or thinking about it or saying, well, why does this belong in a, in a training book? How would you answer that? I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that I, I'm not one of those people, but what I'm, I'm asking is how did you guys in your kind of experiment of one or your experiment of two of working with athletes, how did you come to realize the importance of this, what, what you guys uh, refer to as self-acceptance and what, you know, you also refer to and, and other people refer to as, as the mindfulness or, or the uh, being present and, and, and focusing on the process and not the results? How, how, is there an example or, or a, a time when you realized how important and how essential that was to training happy and healthy runners and to mm-hmm. the point that you could kind of stand it on the same pedestal as, you know, these are the workouts that you have to do and everything else. Well, first, to the critic that doesn't agree or doesn't resonate with, I will say they are right. 
You know, like <laughs> everyone has a different experience and theirs is just as valid as what ours is. Though theirs is not right for others, just like ours might not be right for others. Um, yeah, there's a good, we, uh, on Amazon, you know, they have reviews. Um, and so things were going really well. 32 five-star reviews. The 33rd just came in like a few minutes ago, I saw before this podcast, because we get, we have a little notification uh, to ding <laughs> us. And, um, you know, who called it like glib and obvious, which is like, <laughs> that's probably the best description of my work that I've ever heard. Um, but yeah, my point is like, I get it. I that's get hilarious. it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so like when it comes to the whole concept of self-acceptance and why that is even the focus, I mean, I think it just gets back to one, our like own personal experiences before our coaching even started. I mean, one that. I mentioned briefly in the book is, um, you know, I was an unknown runner, no, like just had won a couple races locally, but just little itty ones, little bitty ones, but never really did much Trained my butt off for the first time, like really implementing these principles and going for it. Um, and then did a national trail, trail championship race, won that race over Bobby Mack, who was the U S cross country champion sure. that year. So like a, a big D, you know, 27 minute 10 K guy in a 10 K um, so shocking, this really big upset, I'm sure on social media, on Trail Runner magazine, on things it like came across this way. And for me personally, it resulted in overtraining a complete downfall almost of our relationship, not like to the max, but you know, I was definitely a worse partner and decreased happiness levels, at least temporarily. And, you know, it really draw, drew home that, oh wait, yeah, there's nothing, there is no light at the end of the tunnel with this or anything. There's just more tunnel. And so you need to embrace that tunnel. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was kind of always my perspective to a certain extent. And then when you started coaching, you just see like the outcomes of whatever happens in running or in life are almost irrelevant to like how the person conceive of conceives of themselves. And, um, yeah, we're fortunate to be taught essentially by all these athletes that we've now coached some for six years. You know, we've checked in with them every day for six years. And it's really shown us that, man, if you don't, if you don't work simultaneously on this, like the mental approach to yourself, then the physical approach with your body is totally irrelevant, both from a um, you know, a happiness point of view, but then also from a performance point of view, like a sustainable growth point of view. Um, so especially if you're a runner planning to improve for decades, you know, it might work if you're like an Olympic athlete that only cares about one Olympics or is okay burning out at 40 or whatever. But, um, right. but yeah, so we've seen, I mean, we don't want to tell other people's stories, but God, we have seen athletes win the biggest races in the world and then immediately go into deep depressions. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's not their fault, you know, it's and so that's why we talk about this stuff in advance. And what our hope is with the book is that just by thinking about this stuff, it asks some questions that maybe plant a seed that germinate over time in that person's head to where they're a little bit more okay with success, failure, all these other things that can that go into a running life, not just like thinking that the only thing that they care about are some finish line that doesn't mean much ultimately. Right. And I agree that's uh, in developing kind of a, a healthy running lifestyle and, and, you know, in, you know, approaching the sport as something that I think we want to do for a long time, it's incredibly important to, I mean, first of all, it's very, it's going to be very hard to be successful if you're not enjoying the process, at least on some, some level, you just, nobody's going to be able to sustain the amount of work that it requires unless you are getting some sort of enjoyment out of just the the daily, you know, the work and, and, and the need to do the work and sometimes just the process itself and the thought of progressing is, is what needs to get you through because it can't always be, it can't always be the finish line, like you said, because there's always another finish line and, and, and getting to your, or reaching that goal is, is never going to make you feel quite as fulfilled as maybe you think it will or, or, or it needs to, to be sustainable. Now here's mm -hmm. the flip side of that. And the question that I have as somebody who, you know, I, I think I am somebody who enjoys the process very much, but at the same time, it's a sport that I continue to do after almost 30 years of, of more or less continuous uh, training with some brief interruptions here and there. It's a sport that I continue to do because I continue to have goals and I continue to, you know, try to be competitive in whatever, you know, 
way or, or venue that I that I think I might be able to, you know, eventually uh, make myself competitive in. And as I get mm-hmm. older and older, it's, you know, usually it's basically just eventually once the 300 mile races become popular, I'm sure I'll be very, very competitive. Um, <laughs> or the competition dies off. Or <laughs> right. Uh, but, so, but th- this is, this is kind of my conflict is, is because, and I think for a lot of people out there, because I do enjoy it, but at the same time, I don't know that without having those goals out there and without being kind of results uh, focused or results driven, I don't know that I would have that same motivation necessary to do the work to get there. So how do we reconcile those things? I mean, is it, I, I know you guys say in the book, it's, it's important to have the goals, but it's important also not to focus too much on them. I, I kind of am of the, or not, not that I'm of the opinion. My fear is that uh, without the goals being there, like when I get to the point where I just feel like I can't compete anymore, I'm just not going to want to do it at all because the, the, the process is going to seem, or I'm afraid that the process is going to cease to mean as much as it does now. Mm-hmm. No, I, that's the, the best question about this. And, um, you know, we like athletes to have massively big goals. I mean, we tell athletes dream so big that like the goal makes you crap your pants. Like it's that <laughs> scary. Um, but keep in mind and never lose sight of this, that the goal itself is just a means to an end that the goal is just meant to structure the process that you're trying to embrace. So, Essentially, you harness the, the potentially destructive power of results chasing into this thing that brings a longer term like process focus. So within, and, you know, what that means in practice is that process is just the day to day of life. We're not, um, it's not anything fancier than that in our formulation. Um, results are any one day or, or moment or adventure or whatever. So, yeah, you know, having something to focus on is essential, both from a coaching methodology point of view and like a psychology point of view to get out the door, to do all these things you love. But you have to keep in mind that one day is still just one day of, of many. And it has about as much, it has a proportional impact on your life. Right. And I think is one of the big lessons here. If it's like, if you have 10 races a year, that's, you know, a few percent of your life and that's it. Um, even if it feels way bigger, but those few percent can then motivate the other 97% or whatever. And that's, that's where to think about it is that dream big, dream so big that you're motivated, that you love it. But just remember that the goal is not the goal. The goal is just, um, kind of like something to spur you along on your journey. Um, and that the goal, you know, once you get there, it's just like a part of the ongoing process. Um, so yeah, you're allowed to have checkpoints. It's just like a hundred mile race. Like, yeah, there's an aid station at mile 20. That doesn't mean that the aid station at mile 20 is like the race. Um, and that's kind of what races are themselves in a broader running life. Right. Right. That makes sense. Another kind of question that I wanted to ask you along these similar lines where, where you guys talk about control and, and part of the, warning against ascribing too much importance to any single race or to any single result or anything like that is that so much of it is out of our control and you can have a you know a perfect buildup and you can do everything right and your training can be going perfect and nutrition nutrition can be on point but if you know the weather goes wrong or your stomach goes bad or you know it it just quote unquote isn't your day then you know, things out of your control are going to negatively impact your race and not give you the result that you want. Uh, even if, you know, you've done all of the, so if, if you've been diligent about your, your preparation and everything else, how, how do we, I, I guess this is kind of an existential question, but do you have any thoughts on kind of being able to accept that or, or, or to get over the disappointment, I should say, I guess, of, you know, trusting in the process and following the preparation and, and doing everything right and still not having things turn out your way. I mean, that can be crushing. How, how, how do you guys manage that with your clients when inevitably that does happen? Is there a, a, a way that you can help them mitigate the disappointment of that sort of thing? Oh, yeah. It's a universal human experience, whether it's running or work or family or anything else. Like, um, you know, it, it's, it's almost like, a Zen or even nihilist point of view where you're like, life is a series of failures interspersed with momentary successes or whatever. <laughs> um, but I mean, th- that all comes from truth. Like that is 
the experience of existence for everything. And that's okay. Um, and so what we try to do is really get our athletes to embrace the idea that it's not just okay, it is the point. Um, the so, struggle. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you know, like the, like we try not, to, we try to avoid all like spiritual, like direct spiritual references in anything because everyone comes in with their own, their own place in that. And we don't, you know, we don't have anything that we're trying to like proselytize for them. Um, I probably said that word wrong. I've read that word a lot, but never said it. No, that's I think that's really right. Awkward. Yeah. Uh, on one podcast at one point, I said the word caveat, but I had only read it, I think. And I said the word, <laughs> I said it caveat. So lesson to people is like. I was, I was just listening play. to another podcast where they were having this exact conversation where it's like words that you know what they mean and you know how to use them, except you only ever read them. The, the one that uh, the guy <laughs> He, he, there was, there were two that the, the one uh, guy was talking about. One was uh, archetype or archetype, you know, yeah. like it, you, you would yeah. never say it in conversation. You know exactly what it means. The other one is um, B I O P I C, which is I, I don't even know. Oh. Is it biopic or biopic? I mean, I know what it is, but like, when have you ever heard I somebody say? Bi- say it? I you, say biopic. I say but... biopic also, but I have no idea. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, the, no, these I... are the kinds of tangents I've been going off on all day. You, you have to forgive me. You're totally going to get whatever <laughs> opportunity this is. Um, but yeah, so like the, not just to accept them, but to look forward to them, especially in a running life and cherish them because running, like, I mean, athletics in general is life put down into this bite-sized morsel that you can consume without really any consequence. So really embrace that ele- element of it and consume away. Like if it was just successful, it wouldn't be life. It would be something totally different entirely. And that's not interesting whatsoever. Um, So we, I mean, I like, I have a, I just wrote something. Strava has like a year end post. And one of the things about the resolutions that I wrote about is like, I ask athletes to, to try to fail. Like if you don't have a spectacular failure next year, you are not dreaming big enough. Right. <laughs> um, and then when it happens, to look, like love it, to be like, to like cherish it, kind of like a bitter, like a bitter wine or something. We're like, mm, oh, hints of elderberry. <laughs> like that, this failure, oh, hints of cramping. Mm, interesting. Um, <laughs> but, but like to, to really like get that and, and like not push it away, but to like give it a hug and bring it in closer because that is where your ultimate strength comes from is when these, these things that, that you do fear like evolutionarily or just naturally you lose their power over you. And so, yeah, like, I, I mean, it sucks when it happens, even when you have this mindset, but over time, like the same thing that can be depressing can also be a really funny story. And so yeah, by reframing it like this, you can often find a lot of chuckles where you formerly had tears. Not that tears are a bad thing in and of themselves, but um, yeah, if you, you, you know, if you look at failure this way, lots of chances to laugh at yourself. Lots of them. <laughs> That's really good. Uh, you know, it's where we're, it just occurs to me, we're sitting here talking about, you know, a lot of you know, feelings and emotions and, and, you know, what some people would describe as touchy-feely. And I don't want people who are unfamiliar with uh, your work to get the impression that you're a, um, you know, kind of like a, everyone's enjoying ourselves, you know, running through the fields of, uh, of you know, flowers. And, and this is all just a, um, you know, a, a great love-in. Uh, you are, you and, and Megan both are, are two of the more successful coaches of uh, some of the most successful trail and ultra runners in the country, including uh, Western States 100 champions and and uh, trail and ultra national champions. So I, I just I, there's no question there. I just wanted to kind of make it <laughs> make it clear that this is not just, you know, some sort of Zen philosophy that is just, uh, you know, allowing us to, you know, I don't know, do something real uh, touchy feel. I mean, it, yeah, it, look at, it, you, I think it's you guys helpful. you guys have. Many many successes to back up the what you're saying here that this stuff works. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if you think about two other sp- that, that means a lot. Thank you. But like, if you think about other sports, I mean, Phil Jackson, you know, one of the most successful NBA coaches yeah, that's, ever. That's a perfect like, example. Exactly. The Zen master, or nowadays Greg Popovich of the Spurs, or Steve Kerr, or really any coach in almost any sport except maybe football, because football is kind of like the worst. Yes. Um, 
you know, has the same, the same approach over time. And it just becomes like, yeah, if you're paying attention, like if you're actually listening, you, like you kind of come to the same conclusions. I mean, they're, they might be said a little bit differently, but it's all the same stuff. Right. Um, like even like the, a, a book that's out right now, that's top of the bestseller list, um, is can't hurt me, I think by David Goggins. It's the same stuff as our book. It's said differently for sure. Um, and you know, much in a much, like, not quite as glib and obvious, I guess. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Total five stars, five stars across the board. Um, but yeah, but it's the same stuff. So like, th- this is a, a universal articulation of the human experience and it, and it goes for religions or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, I think the reason it's so important in running is because it, in running results, let's say, like these things that don't matter that we're talking about, is that it feeds into this daily process that's required to adapt. Um, so, like, it doesn't matter how you conceive of yourself in relation to existence until that conception sabotages your consistency and you never grow as much as you can or you're afraid to believe in your dreams because you're afraid of failure or whatever Mm -hmm. so you know i think if you look at our athletes like someone like keely henninger who you know started started coaching her four years ago when she was a new runner just starting out and like you know the reason that she's done what she's done is because she has this like persistent belief in herself and like just keeps building and she and what motivates that is different for her than it is for other people. Like, um, it's not that she's learned it from us or anything. She had this in her, but yeah, I mean, that's what motivated the training that then leads to these great places. So, I mean, what I try to tell people is that even if you think this is a bunch of BS, like it clearly works athletically for some people, um, not, not just through us, but through like pretty much anyone that has a long sustainable athletic career. So, um, yeah, like, I totally, it's, it's one of those weird things where by not caring about results, you actually like find out what you're truly capable of long-term rather than getting bogged down in the minutia of a running life, which is just subject to random chance and all this other stuff we're talking about. Right, right. Let's switch a little bit briefly because I've already taken up a bunch of your time. I don't want to hold you too much longer, and I have a couple other things I want to get through. Let's sw- switch a little bit just to tackle a little bit of science or, or kind of uh, your training philosophy and such. What I've what I kind of have always, and I mentioned this earlier, I think, uh, been drawn to in, in a lot of your writing is your grasp of the principles and also your well, A, your way of describing things in a very clear and concise manner, but also in terms of your your training philosophy of being very well-rounded and really addressing different systems and uh, different energy uh, systems and different uh, training components. And those are things that I think, especially people who don't work with a coach or or who haven't had, or people, you know, in our sport, in, in trail running and in ultra running in particular, a lot of people are coming to it from disparate athletic backgrounds. Yeah, that's another one that you only mm-hmm. really read and never say, right? Disparate? Is it disparate <laughs> or disparate? It's disparate, right? I really have I no idea. Yeah, I think that's it. Anyway, who come from these differing backgrounds and, and different athletic pursuits in the past and, and maybe not with a, a, have not been in a structured uh, running or endurance training plan before and, and are coming to it kind of later in life. And a lot of people get caught in a rut of just running longer and running more and adding on miles and without building in any sort of variation or in, in day-to-day workouts, in intensity, uh, without periodizing at all, you, you really get into a rut and you, and you can't unlock a lot of potential for improvement in those cases. And I, I, I wanted to just talk a little bit about kind of how you guys view kind of putting together a training plan and, and incorporating various types of workouts into a training plan that, that you know, needs to be adaptable for a bunch of different uh, types of athletes? Amazing question. Yeah. So I think a good place to start is that adaptation doesn't care about numbers. Um, and I think it's it's something that, you know, we've had to get the courage to say over time, not to like step on people's toes. But a good example is when you think about energy systems, something like VO2 max or lactate threshold or even aerobic threshold, mm-hmm. these are all essentially, think of, imagine just as a thought exercise, they're essentially bell curves where, you know, you're for each person even. The, there is no like one place in, in the way the body works where you're at velocity at VO2 max and that is a great adaptation. The body doesn't work like that. It doesn't care about that. It's so much more blurry. So you have all of these, and, and everything works like that. It's not just energy 
G systems. So you have all these blurry things overlapping to create this picture of training that then becomes clear. Um, and I think a lot of times when people are like planning training, they're like, okay, it needs to be this super highly structured thing with a like major physio physiological purpose behind each thing, or I don't care about that. I'm just going to go run. Right. And both of those are selling the athletes short a little bit. Right. Um, because the one over like one oversimplifies a complex situation and one looks at a complex situation and just decides F it. Um, I'm not doing it. Um, and so what we generally like athletes to do instead is to think of what they're actually trying to improve and how that will support like the runner and person they want to be. So like bringing in what we just talked about before. Mm -hmm. So our main principles are really simple. Like one, you want to be able to run as much as you possibly can healthily. So that really requires easy running, knowing what your easy means and what, why it means it. Two, you want to actually be fast. And this is, I think, the big thing in, in trail and ultra training that started to change a little bit, um, but you still has room probably to keep moving, is you need to like, like you know, we're, we're probably most known for doing lots of strides and hill, short hill work and things like that. I'm not, right. When I'm talking about speed, I'm not talking about mile repeats. I'm talking about the actual ability to go fast for short periods of time. And like those are the two main elements that you start with, are just these baseline running attributes that are way more simple than whatever the underlying physiology is. Um, and these have massive physiological implications. So Easy running, you know, fully changes how you work on, the, like aerobically, you know, gets adds capillaries through angiogenesis, um, makes you better able to process oxygen, right. makes your musculoskeletal, yeah, makes your all of this other stuff. Um, you know, the fast strides work in work in tandem with that, improving your power output, um, doing you know, improving cardiac stroke output, th all these different elements, and then you can move forward. But I think all too often people like think of it in such a complex way that they lose sight of the basics. And what our book tries to do at least is like present the basics for someone that might not have ever seen them. So, um, yeah, I mean, like most athletes should just not care so much about running as many miles as they can or as many workouts as they can or anything like that. And should just try to find a weekly structure that they can repeat over and over and over again consistently you know, with, with minor changes around the outside mm -hmm. and that will help them reach their potential rather than trying to like, you know, do a concerto with their training plan. They should just like play the recorder and you do that long enough and it actually gets you to amazing places. So do you, but do you periodize for a season or around a specific goal race or something like that? Oh yeah, we definitely do periodization. I mean, our usual style is that you start with speed, mm -hmm. um, like th this, this easy, and then velocity of VO2 max, and then work from there, whether the athlete is, you know, going for an Olympic trials qualifier in the marathon, um, like a bunch of our athletes recently, or, you know, going for a hundred mile or, or a mile or anything in between. So, um, yeah, we think that for most athletes, unless they're young and like really naturally fast, mm -hmm. you kind of need to check that box first right. and then you can move on. Um, but you need to keep reintroducing that stimulus throughout. So, yeah, I mean, we do, I think every, you have to periodize as a coach. Um, but in general, periodization is a little bit less important than maybe Lydiard thought it was. Mm -hmm. Um, and that what he was seeing weren't benefits necessarily related to the period, the periodization element so much as it was like, um, some other factors that, so there's a recent paper by a researcher named John Keeley that went into great detail on this, but it is super interesting that periodization it really matters, but the way we do it probably matters a little less than we used to think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I could talk about this stuff all day. Uh, <laughs> I won't, I won't do that to you, but I let, let's drill down on one specific, uh, training point just to kind of sure. give people something to chew on. You had a recent article in trail runner, which I read, which was fantastic about, uh, hill running and training to run uphill. And you basically made the point that people who kind of had success early on in, in hill running or mountain running, when they first started it, had a lot of success because they were fast, as you're talking about. And then the trap that people tend to fall into, or in, in, at times at least, was just running more and more hills or doing more and more vert or, you know, these big mountains and everything else. And suddenly their hill running suffered. 
and that's because their they weren't their their training stimulus wasn't producing the same benefits in running economy because it wasn't mimicking the effects of the hard mm-hmm. uphill running that they needed to do. And you made the argument that actually speed work is going to be more beneficial than maybe gigantic vert when you're talking about hill running. Oof, that Did I have a, that right? That was a controversial article. <laughs> I, I thought that was, I, just, I thought that article was awesome. And I think the the way that I took that article to mean and and correct me if I'm wrong. You weren't advocating against running hills. And I think uh, the way that I was reading it was if you're doing hard hill running in kind of shorter, more runnable grades that uh, you can actually mimic the the stresses of, of running up, or of racing uphill and also mimic the uh, kind of benefits that you're getting from, you know, something that you might do on the track or something like that, that's going to be beneficial. It's when you get up into the higher grades that require power hiking, where you're now stressing different systems. So a, a long day out in the mountains where you're doing, you know, tons of vert, but where the the biomechanics and the system, the energy systems are different than these shorter, you know, more VO2 max type efforts are not specific enough for the kind of stress that you need. Yeah, that article got some spicy replies on Twitter. Did it really? Um, from yeah, I mean, yeah, everything does. But um, <laughs> I guess it's that Twitter. one got some from from more um, from more authoritative sources. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically what it comes down to is from the very beginning, we're very data driven. We saw a lot of data that was starting to to show us that wait. We, I mean, it was almost like a climbing paradox that as vert accumulated, performances decreased after a specific period, a specific window passed, usually like a certain number of weeks or months. Um, and so we dug into a little bit more. And I mean, I think it kind of like it confirmed a lot of our preconceived notions. So we were really, we really hesitant to talk about it publicly for a long time. And now like a few studies have come out recent, just in the last year that have made us more confident. So essentially the... The basic principle, it all gets back to running economy. How much, for the listeners, how much energy you take to go a given pace. The lower that is, the better. Mm-hmm. That's everything in performance. So we know from decades of seeing people progress over time that running economy on flat ground can improve over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's any athlete that progresses past age 18, when if you've been training, your VO2 max is pretty optimized already. Right. Um, so we know that can improve. And we know that from some recent studies that your flat ground running economy and your uphill running economy overlap generally or correlated at any given moment in your your training life. But what we don't know is whether focusing solely on hills improves your uphill running economy that will then overlap with your level. So essentially, we know that if you train flat, you will become a better climber with specific training. But we don't know the opposite, Mm -hmm. that if you train a lot of hills, you'll become better at hills even no matter what you do, right. as crazy as that sounds, that sounds so counterintuitive, but it's something we've seen over and over again. Probably has a lot of different reasons for it, but I mean, it's the main thing that we've then introduced into our training for athletes. So a great example being Jason Schlarp, who mm-hmm. joined at 39 after you know a, a rough period, like a major down period, like fully in the dumps about where he was, and we were just like we we described this to him in, in detail, and he bought in then essentially worked on his 5k 10k speed and still did specific training this isn't saying like don't go up hills this is saying like do it don't just chase vert as like something that you think is an output that is going to improve your trial running unless it has a purpose or it's really fun um (laughs) so and then he did that and i mean he i talked to him this morning and he said that this and he told his he wrote this on instagram too he's like by far my best year of racing ever and he did that he had a fantastic year yeah, and he, but he did it off of like way lower total volume in terms of distance and less vert. And you know, this coming year, now that he's built up his running economy on level ground, we're going to keep doing that, but we're also going to increase the distance and the vert, and he's going to blow it out. It's going to be awesome. But um, you know, it's it, it gets back to like, yeah, I mean, I think it, it gets back to this whole thing of specificity in general, like mm-hmm. training specifically for a race. Right. That I think. Sometimes trail and ultra runners get so focused on doing things that are specific to whatever they want to do, like whatever event they're interested in, right. that they lose sight of the fact that like good runners are good runners, and the goal should be to improve your running, if, that, if performance is one of the main goals. Right, right. And Schlarber is somebody who, right, I think early in his career, I, I mean, he came from a track background. I think he was, 
like a 353 or so for 1500 in, in college. I mean, he had legit wheels and, and he made, I mean, he, he really burst onto the scene, I think at Bandera a few years back. This was maybe 10 years ago already. And he was, I mean, he was a monster because he had the strength and he had the leg speed. And, you know, th- there was a combination that wasn't, you know, quite as prevalent then as it is now. And then, right, I think he, he might've, uh, you know, not to, not to, harp on anything but uh, i think he he kind of like you said got after chasing these big mountains and and chasing the vert and he had some really really cool adventures but it it didn't necessarily lead to the same kind of results that he had beforehand when he still had it did so i think the the clear like the the point there is that it really did at first because that that economy but um, right, that's what I'm saying, because he had yeah. come from this background where he what I mean, he was a, basically a national or a world class track athlete. So he had that economy built in. And that's where a lot of that early success came from. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think it's something that plays out a lot on just like the beginner intermediate level too. Um, like you give me an athlete that has run. And I mean, I actually proposed this hypothetical in an unrelated article the other week, but it's like you know, a lot of people disagree with that notion. Um, and, but let's say that one athlete has run a 19 minute 5k and one has run a a 20 minute 5k in the last year. And then otherwise they've kind of done similar long runs in this build up to this race. Which one do you choose over 50 miles? It's like probably that 19 minute 5k or if you're betting on it, Sure. even with, and so the point is like, we're all in here, we're all implicitly doing this mental calculus when thinking about athletes, but we don't really like train for it all the time. Right. So I mean, a lot of our athletes right now, I mean, many are taking off seasons when needed, but a lot of them, especially the pros are doing essentially like 10 K style work, you mm-hmm. know, motiv- like an evolution of what I mentioned before of like Canova Daniels mixed with a little, like, you know, we are moderately infatuated right now with uh, Tom Schwartz, Tin man um, mm-hmm. out here in Boulder um, and love what he's doing and kind of, kind of, Convergent evolution came along a lot of the same principles with our data that he came along with his data. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, a lot of them are kind of doing that right now, which is, you know, sometimes not considered super sexy, but um, it's, I think it really does fuel that long-term growth element, which really gets back to the process thing. Like right. we know you can improve these things long-term, which means you can like fully embrace your potential, which is really fun. Right. Right. Dave, what's next on the horizon for you and Megan? Um, I, you know, I always love seeing you guys, your names pop up on start lists and results. It's great because I know you guys are always going to give the top people a run for their money and in in a lot of cases win some of this stuff. What what do you guys have planned for the next uh, year or so in terms of your Um, own running? That's an awesome question. Well, my usual thing now is like, I don't like to race swap that somewhere called play the athletes I coach. I don't like to race the men on the team. So I kind of plan like last second, but um, <laughs> I'm doing t- temporarily doing the formidable 50 K the U S 50 K champs in yes. February. Yes. Nice. Um, and then probably like Sonoma after that. Oh, um, fantastic. Have you run Sonoma but, before? No, I've never, I've believe it personally, I've never done a 50. Yeah. I was going to um, say, I don't remember seeing you in anything really longer than a 50 K. Yeah, slow playing it trying to trying to <laughs> enjoy the process all the time but um yeah it's it's super fun because you know, so megan coaches me and like she's the best freaking coach in the world so i'm really excited because this past year i didn't race as much because of that rule and so i've talked to the swap men that are in these races and they're like oh hell, hell yeah come race um so yeah it's it's really fun and training's going real well. and then for megan like she's also planning on sonoma and basically we just do the same races awesome. and she's the she's the uh She's the breadwinner of the family when it comes to racing, <laughs> and uh, I'll uh, I'll use the free hotel rooms. <laughs> I was going to ask Megan to join us, but I figured she'd be. Is she in the middle of residency right now, or is she taking a break from medicine? Yeah, she's planning on not doing residency. That's the the current the current setup. She's all in on coaching and research and writing. So um, doing kind of like her own. I was able to I was able to convince her, though. Anyone that knows <laughs> Megan knows. No one convinces her. She, 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 she figures it out herself eventually. Um, so no, I'm su- we're super excited. That's awesome. Uh, before I let you go, we do have to play our stupid game that I play with all my guests. How old are you, Dave? You're you're a little younger than me, I think, right? Uh, yes, I'm 30. Yeah, you're a lot younger than me. Jesus. Uh, so you probably <laughs> don't remember an old radio show called Desert Island Discs. 
I don't. Uh, so this was like a, this, this uh, I don't even remember what station it was on, but I think it was like a syndicated thing where they would have like a, a, a rock star or a celebrity come on and they would have to give like the three discs that they were bringing, the three songs that they were bringing to a desert island. So we do something similar. We call it Desert Island Picks. You're going to a desert island for a year. I'm going to ask you to bring one book, one album, one food, and one beer. What are you going to bring with you? Okay. One book. I'm going to go Catch-22. Oh, um, that's a great on. book. Um, just because I read it very young, like probably like eight years old. Um, did you really? And, yeah, I don't think like, I would have been able to comprehend parents, that book when I was eight years old. My parents old. did not isolate me from things. And I don't know if I fully did, but I definitely got the subversive yeah. element in it. Yeah. And I think it, it kind of formed a lot of my feelings on like <laughs> probably a lot of the things that read in the book. Yeah, probably some glib things that came out of the yes. book. Um, <laughs> came from Catch-22. I uh, love glib because your, your writing is very um, kind of self-referential and very pop culture-y. And, and yes, glib is just the lowest common denominator way to describe oh, that. It's hilarious. It's perfect. It's the perfect. It's like, so great. Incisive <laughs> criticism, though. It's because, like, like how can I be a maximum dick and yet get my point across? Yeah, there yeah. You go. It's like, you know, when, you, when you're fighting... When you're fighting with someone you're close to, you know what to say to hurt them. I bet whoever, who, who the person who did it was anonymous, but I'm like, bet that person knows. I bet that person knows more about us than bet that we're not just some random author to them. That's hilarious. Um, That's hilarious. Okay, probably, probably catch twenty two. One, uh, one album. Um, that's tough. I'm gonna go. Oh my god, this is gonna be. I'm just going back to childhood things. Yeah. Um, so probably the only album like I've actually listened to like front to back was the Tupac Greatest Hits album when I was in <laughs> uh, when I was a kid. Uh, also, nice. because like, I was this kid growing up on a in a farm in this really rural place, and to me it was like so cool. So I would just sit there play video games and listen to Tupac Greatest Hits. Oh, that was your and that's probably that also, was subversive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I mean, I think a lot of a lot of my childhood was like wanting to like feeling a little out of place wherever I was, which is like what Lin-Manuel Miranda says about developing a writer in the first place is to make them feel out of place when they're young. Right. Um, but yeah, so that'll be my choice for that. And right. then food. Yes. Can I skip food. to food? Is yep. that um, Pizza for yeah, sure. Yeah. That's the only right answer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One beer. Um, what's the beer. I'm going to go, Oh my God. I'm going to go with, Actually, I, I, I'm wanting to say a beer, but I'm just going to go. I like whatever hard ciders on tap, honestly. Oh, okay. And cool. Boulder, especially. Um, Got to be honest. I like some Capri Sun with some, some bubbles and alcohol in it. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> no, no. I like that I'm, I've become more sophisticated, and now they make like dry cider and sure. things like that. But, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I've, you guys are yeah. you're in Northern California, right? No, so we've we have relocated to Boulder. Um, oh, okay. So we we live in Boulder now. With you know a lot of at, our athletes are here, and yeah, so we've started our new life without residency and without law and with many dogs. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, you got to come out when you come out east. You let me know. We're in the Hudson Valley. We have uh, fantastic apple cider, actually. Uh, oh, hard cider, God. dry well, cider, all that stuff is is I, I can in. take you I've, to um, probably four really excellent cideries within fifteen minutes of my house. I've always wanted to do Cayuga 50, which I think is in New York, yeah, probably yeah. a little, it's a little, that's little far away. My, there, my good friend, uh, Ian Golden, that's his race and I'm on, yeah. I'm on, uh, his racing team. So yeah, come on out. You have a place to oh, stay. So cool. We'll get you all the cider you want. <laughs> oh my God. That's all you have to say. <laughs> won't, won't even make it to the race. My athletes will be like, I thought you were supposed to check in every day. I'll be like, I was hungover and sleeping. David, thanks so much for joining us today in the pain cave. This was really, really great. Uh, the book is called The Happy Runner. It is available, again, on Amazon. Congratulations. And uh, wherever fine books are sold, second printing is coming soon. So if you haven't been able to get it because it was sold out there briefly, please pick it up. It is really a fantastic work and uh, will really, I think, change the way a lot of people approach their training and just their day-to-day their -day lives and, and the way they kind of approach the sport. And I think it's, it's really very important. Thanks so much for having me on, Jay. And thanks, everyone, for listening. You guys are awesome. Thanks, David. I'll speak to you soon. Everybody else, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time in the pain cave, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Down and beaten up. The years have been long and tough, but I'm not dead. Happy now just to spend some time with friends and have a roof above my head. 
not jaded, just been faded like a good old pair of jeans. Rusty like a proud old car that's drove a little too far and seen too much rain. But long ago, as a child, I look about the night sky and thought, wonder man. Then ride the bus, feel upset to think of all the years I'd have to go through there. I was still young. I was still. 